Now, there's a quote I read some time ago. I don't know who said it or in what context, but this person said that intelligent people learn from their mistakes, but wise people learn from other people's mistakes. Okay? And so my prayer for us today is that we would be wise and we would learn from the mistake, from the sin, really, that we see in our text today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. This is a long text, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can follow along with me as I summarize it, and then we'll, we'll read a portion at the end. So Daniel chapter 4, it's, it's, it's written like a letter, and it's probably a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, uh, Babylon, wrote with Daniel's help. And it opens with the traditional style that you had for ancient letters. There's this introduction to who is writing, and there's a blessing on the recipients. There's some poetic praise of God that follows that, which actually anticipates what's to come at the end of the chapter. If you read the whole chapter of Daniel 4, it begins the same way it ends, with this poetic praise towards God. And the account begins in the first person. And we're at the height of Nebuchadnezzar's power, And in verse 4, he says that he is at home in his palace, contented and prosperous. But that doesn't last for very long, because in verse 5, he has this troubling dream, this disturbing dream comes to him. And so he calls his magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to come and interpret it. But none of them can, so he calls in Daniel. And in verses 10 through 18, Nebuchadnezzar explains this dream to Daniel. And he says in the dream, he sees this large tree in the middle of the land of great height touching the sky. And it's beautiful and prosperous. It provides food and shelter for birds and and all the other animals. It's this important, prominent tree in the center of the land. Now, this is a very common way of symbolizing a kingdom or a dominion in the ancient Near East. It was often used that way. Actually, the book of Ezekiel, a couple times, Ezekiel uses a tree to symbolize a kingdom. Uh, Jesus actually does it in Matthew 13 as well. But this tree is ordered to be cut down. It's stripped of its branches, it's brought to a stump, and then it's bound with iron and bronze. And immediately the imagery shifts from talking about this this tree to talking about a person. And it says this person is going to be given the mind of an animal, and he is going to live among the animals for a period of time and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And verse 17 concludes and gives us the purpose, why all this is going to happen. It says that it's going to happen so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth. So picking up in verse 19, Daniel understands and grasps the meaning of this vision. He's troubled by it, and he interprets the dream. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree, and this fate will come to pass to your dominion, to you, unless you repent and acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth. And Daniel urges him to repent and be kind to the oppressed, in verse 27, as this may elicit God's mercy upon him. 
Picking up in verse 28, we're a year later and the prophecy is fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar is walking on his palace roof and he says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And immediately, even as the words were on his lips, the text says, Nebuchadnezzar has his kingdom stripped from him, and he goes into the wilderness where he eats grass like a wild ox. He's drenched with the dew of heaven. And it's interesting to note that this part of the narrative is now written in the third person. It highlights the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is not in his right mind during this time. He could hardly have retold the story. And so what happens to Nebuchadnezzar is probably what we would know today as lycanthropy. It's a a psychological disorder where people believe that they become an animal and they act like an animal. And in Daniel's time, they had this as well, and they recognized lycanthropy as a sign of God's judgment on somebody. And so Nebuchadnezzar's peers, the people of that time, would have, you know, this would have resonated with them. They would have understood it as God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. But then finally, in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar praises God. He learns his lesson, and we'll pick it up and read there in Daniel 4, verse 34. It says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples on earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So in this story, we have Nebuchadnezzar being taught a lesson. Four times we see it in the text. In verse 17, the messenger tells Nebuchadnezzar the point of the dream. Then in verse 25, Daniel interprets the dream, says the same thing. It's there again in verse 32 when Nebuchadnezzar is punished. And then we see it again in verse 35 when Nebuchadnezzar repents and praises God. What is the lesson? The lesson is that God is sovereign. Three times, it says, he, God, gives the kingdoms of earth to whomever he wants. And at the very end, in this beautiful confessional poem in verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar says, all the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He, God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, in the context, regarding the peoples of earth as nothing doesn't mean that God doesn't care for us or think that we're significant. It means that in terms of power, in terms of authority, people are nothing compared to God. 
And even more, it means that nothing stops what God wills. No one can hold back his hand. So saying that God is sovereign means that he has absolute rule and reign over the universe. Another way we say it these days is that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There is no corner of the universe. There is no country, no planet, no grain of sand on the beach, no snowflake outside, no electron whirling around some atom somewhere, nothing that is not completely and securely under God's lordship. Nothing is hidden from him. He doesn't wonder, he doesn't speculate, he doesn't worry. Nothing is impossible for him. Nothing overwhelms him. He has full authority, power, and oversight over everything. He sustains, upholds, and preserves everything. God is sovereign. God is in control. And this point is actually made repeatedly in the book of Daniel. God's sovereignty is a major theme in this book. We saw it actually in chapter 2. As God gives the king this vision of how he, God, will overthrow the kingdoms of earth. Last week in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got it. They got God's sovereignty. Go ahead, throw us into the furnace. God can save us, and if he doesn't, we trust in him anyway. God is sovereign. They're submitted humbly to his sovereignty. Read ahead to chapter 5. And you'll see the same lesson, the exact same lesson that Nebuchadnezzar gets taught here is taught to his son, Belshazzar. Read ahead to chapter 7. You'll see again, God's power, God's kingdom is the one that ultimately rules and reigns and overthrows all others. So so, so great, right? God is all-powerful. God reigns over the universe. It's all over Daniel, not to mention the rest of the Bible. So is this like, you know, the answer to the theological quiz that we, you know, name the characteristics of God. God is sovereign. Check. Okay. Theological bullet point understood. Done. Right? Is that where it ends? Well, no. I mean, how is God's sovereignty meant to affect us? How do we respond to that? Well, our text actually shows us two ways. And the first one is sneaky. It's implicit. It's very subtle, but it's no less important. And we can get at it if we ask ourselves why God's sovereignty is such a major theme in Daniel. Why would the Holy Spirit, through Daniel, communicate this again and again, and that this would be recorded? We get the answer when we remember that Daniel is written when the nation of Israel is in captivity. Their whole world is upside down. They are no longer their own. They've been taken from their land. They are oppressed. They are marginalized in this foreign land by a foreign power with different customs that does not honor their God. Okay, so imagine, if you would, for a second, if some jihadist group overcame the United States and we were all moved to some other nation in the Middle East while our homeland was left in ruins. What could bring you comfort when everything around you points to despair and hopelessness? That God reigns. That he reigns. This repeated emphasis on God's sovereignty is meant to be a great comfort to the Israelites. 
You see how it, how it speaks to their doubt and their despair that they must have? Hey, things may seem awful now, but God is still in control. He still knows what he's doing. These mighty empires are nothing to him. It might seem like the Babylonians are in control, or eventually it might seem like the Persians are in control, but they're nothing compared to God. Fear not. God is sovereign. He will preserve his people. Evil will be punished. God's kingdom will prevail and reign in the end. And we're meant to have the same response today. ISIS is not more powerful than God. Government X or Nation Y or Politician Z is not outside of God's authority, nor are they any threat to God and his purposes and his plans. They cannot stop the advancement or establishment of God's kingdom. Evil will be punished. Good will prevail. God will preserve his people. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Does it work that way for you? Or do you worry as if there's some detail in your life or some nuance that God cannot use for your good or that he's overlooked or that he cannot act in? Or are you humbly submitted to who God is? Do you realize who God is and who you are? That takes humility, which moves us to the second response we have to God's sovereignty. And this one is not so subtle. It's glaring right at us in the text. And I'm going to park here for a while. And we see it through the negative example of Nebuchadnezzar. The second response to God's sovereignty is that it humbles us before God as we realize who we are and who he is. And we see it in this text because Nebuchadnezzar is the opposite of humble. He's proud. Pride is Nebuchadnezzar's sin in this text. And let's see how it, how it works out. See, pride, one of the main things that pride does, it does a lot of things, but one of the things pride is great at is it takes a gift and it twists it into a personal achievement, okay? Pride has to operate in an achievement-based economy, okay? So the prideful heart takes something given to you that you did not earn and insists that you earned it. In other words, you deserve what you have. It's your achievement. I deserve this because I'm a good person, because I've worked so hard, because I'm so smart, whatever it is. And this is how the prideful heart ends up thinking highly of itself. Look what I have achieved. Aren't I great? And it cuts the other way, too. It's a double-edged sword. Because an equally prideful heart can think little of itself because it doesn't have enough achievements or because it failed at something. I haven't done this or I haven't. I'm a worthless failure. I'm nothing. Both of these attitudes are prideful. Lots of achievements, you're great. Little achievement, you're nothing. And there are many biblical texts that speak to this, but there's a passage in the book of Deuteronomy that states it explicitly. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, the Lord is offering instructions through Moses to the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. And he says this, <clears throat> He says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. 
Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness. He brought you water out of the rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands produce this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. As you see that, what is a proud heart? It's twisting God's gift into an achievement. And we see the same twisting in the text we're looking at today. What kicks off Nebuchadnezzar's judgment? Verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, and he says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, look what I have done. Aren't I wonderful? He's taken something that was given to him, the kingdom of Babylon, and he's turned it into his own achievement for his own praise. That is pride. The right response is the one we see at the beginning of the text and at the end of the text, and that's humility, where Nebuchadnezzar sees his position before God and praises him. He acknowledges that God has given him what he has. Now let me ask, do we fall into that same trap today like Nebuchadnezzar did? So I'm, you know, on weekdays, I'm an electrical engineer, and I, I love my job. I work for a, a medical devices company, and it's, it's a fantastic job. It's afforded me some amazing experiences and opportunities, and it's provided abundantly for, for myself, for my family, and I, it's great. I'm so blessed to have this job. Now, a proud heart would say, well, of course you have a good job, Ryan. You're so smart. <laughs> I mean, you... You worked so hard. You did so well in school. You interview like gangbusters. Of course they'll hire you, right? I mean, why wouldn't you have this great career? Of course you do. It was my ability that produced this great career for me. But, but did it? I mean, was this, is it my achievement? Did I give myself life? Did I choose when and where I would be born? Did I choose that I would be a white male born in 20th century America to two parents who loved me, who disciplined me, and invested deeply in my life? Did I preserve my life when I had heart surgery at, at age five? And did I choose that I would be born near Boston and did I give my father health insurance so he could go to Children's Hospital and we could have one of the most accomplished pediatric surgeons in the state operate on me? Was that all my foresight? Did I teach myself the value of a good work ethic? Did I buy myself our first family computer, which got me interested in electronics in the first place? I mean, did I choose, hey, you know, my father needs to lose his job. It forces us to move out of state where we meet this electrical engineer who builds the computer for us and shows us how to use it, and I'm new to town, so I have no friends, so I spend the entire summer in front of said computer becoming <laughs> proficient with it, right? Was that my engineering, my thought process that got that to happen? Did I give myself the opportunities I have? 
by the way that like a fraction of a fraction of the world has to attend high school, to attend college, to attend graduate school? I mean, if we had time, I could go through my life month after month for the past 41 years and talk for hours about circumstances that befell me, which made me who I am and brought me to where I am, but in which I played no part at all. This bothers some of you a little bit, though, right? It's, it's pride welling up in you. Well, yes, Brian, but didn't you make good choices? Didn't you work hard and study and career to get, you know, get this job? Do you get any credit for that? There's a pride welling up. Well, yeah, I made some good choices, but I've made at least as many bad choices, probably more, and any one of my choices, good or bad, could have gone a million different ways based on the outcome of a billion other circumstances produced by a trillion other contingencies. And who, by the way, was it that gave me the ability to choose? Was that me? No. It was the sovereign God who made me that gave me these things. So the humble heart response to my career is the same one we find at the end of the text we just read. We praise God. We acknowledge who he is and recognize who we are. We thank him for his gifts, and we receive them in humility. Now, there's one more thing about pride that we see in this text that might even be more common than what I just described, and it's much more subtle. Note the way pride affects how we relate to others. And in verse 27, when Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, how does Daniel tell him to repent? He tells him to be kind to the oppressed. Be kind to the oppressed. Why doesn't he just say, acknowledge that you're proud, or acknowledge that God is sovereign? Well, kindness to the oppressed is the true sign of a humble person. The proud cannot truly be kind to the oppressed because they're in an achievement-based economy. So the prideful person thinks they're in a high position because they did it, because they're better than somebody else. That's why they are where they are. And the oppressed and lowly people are oppressed and lowly because they deserve it. They're not smart enough. They're not strong enough. They're not wise enough, or they messed up. It's their own fault that they are where they are. A proud person walks by a homeless person and thinks, man, what a mess they made of their lives. Why don't they get a job? Why don't they sober up? Why don't they get themselves together? A humble person sees their self. You know, with the right circumstances, a, a, a father I lose to cancer when I'm three years old, with a, the series of influential friends who tempted me to take that first dose of heroin, with the mental illness that overtakes me, whatever it is, that could be me. I'm no different. Proud person can't say that. They can only say, I'm here and they're there because we deserve it. You might get a proud person who acts kind to the oppressed, but their hearts aren't right. It, they can't do it for love or compassion. It's, it's more achievement. It's to feel good about themselves or to show or feel others that they truly are better than other people. Or even worse, to try to earn points with God. They do it to achieve something. 
And they go to bed at night thinking, wow, what a good person I am. Nobody else worked late at the homeless shelter tonight. How pleased God must be with me. Now he owes me a good life. If that's not enough, even if we actually do act kindly with the right motives initially, pride is right alongside us wanting to poison it. St. Augustine said this. He said, all other vices are to be apprehended when we are doing wrong, but pride is to be feared even when we do right actions, lest those things which are done in a praiseworthy manner be spoiled by the desire for praise itself. In other words, when you do something good, you're in danger of becoming proud that you did something good, and you wreck it all. So what are the consequences of this? What are the consequences of pride? How does it affect us? I mean, transparently in the text, we see that human pride ultimately results in judgment. But it's interesting to see how it actually plays out in the text today. What does the judgment look like for Nebuchadnezzar? The consequence of pride that we see in the text today is actually the same as the consequences for all sin. It's dehumanizing. See, we're not made to sin and live in pride. We're made to love God, to enjoy him forever in perfectly intimate, fulfilling relationship that's marked by humility and complete, joyful, loving submission to him and who he is. We're created in God's image to reflect his goodness and his glory, to point to him. And every time we sin, we undermine that purpose. And and we're acting less than we're meant to be. It's like me taking out my phone and and trying to drive in a nail with it. It's, It's not acting like a phone. It's acting like a hammer. It's not realizing its purpose of phoneness when it's being misused. And it winds up damaged. It winds up less than a phone. And so also pride is dehumanizing. And we see Nebuchadnezzar literally lives this out. It's like he's a living parable or illustration for us. Nebuchadnezzar elevates himself to superhuman in his pride, and he winds up less than human, like an animal eating grass. He's forfeiting the very image of God in which he was created. He literally dehumanizes himself through his pride. And make no mistake that the same will happen to us. All of the very best of our humanity will be diluted by our pride. You will not be as forgiving. Because if somebody wrongs you, they've not given you what you deserve. They've gone against the system. You're going to hold on to that with bitterness. You're going to view people more as the sum of their achievements rather than equals with intrinsic, God-given value. So you're going to play favorites. Rich guy walks into the room with all these achievements, driving a BMW. Wow, I can learn from him. I want to follow him. I want to be with him. Disadvantaged person walks in. Maybe they're out of a job. Well, what could I possibly possibly get from them? I don't want to spend any time with them. I want to listen to them. You're going to play favorites. Right? Cluck your tongue, parents when you see some misbehavior in another child and the parent doing nothing, 
Do you know their life? Do you know their circumstances? You'd be different, right? You'd be a better parent because of you, right? Had nothing to do with your parents or mentors who showed you what good parenting was about. You chose not to be born into poverty or desperation. You chose not to have a mental illness. You chose to have the capacity, good health, etc., to parent well. That was all you, right? So you're going to be more judgmental. You're going to be less compassionate, less sympathetic. I think I could go on, but you catch my point. And if we persist in pride, ultimately, if we persist in thinking that we work our way to God, that our goodness puts him in our debt, so he owes us heaven because we've been so good, we will face judgment. So what do we, I mean, what do, we do about this? It feels inescapable. C.S. Lewis said that fighting pride is like fighting the hydra, this, this mythical Greek monster where you lop off one head and two more grow back in its place. And I heard John Piper say in a sermon some time ago that there's, there's no method for getting rid of pride. You can't perform some steps and do something to get rid of it because you wind up doing the method well, and then you're proud of doing the method well, right? And so you're proud of your humility. And it's oxymoronic. It just doesn't work that way. So what, what do we do? Well, in our text today, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, and in ours, it's the grace of God. It is the grace of God. God's grace conquers pride. God's grace conquers pride. Who is it that initiates with Nebuchadnezzar? Who humbles him to repentance, to the conviction of his own sin? Who restores him back and receives him? It's God. God initiates. God warns him through the people in his life. God humbles him, and God restores him. It's God's grace. God's grace conquers pride. I mean, could God have left Nebuchadnezzar in his pride? Did he owe him an explanation of how things work? Did he have to restore him after he figured it all out? Did he have to go through this whole exercise and record it for him? No. That's the kind of God he is. He's a God of grace. And centuries later, in different circumstances, we see this grace magnified supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. We see a God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that all who believe in him may have eternal life. Jesus is the way out of all our sin and pride. God's grace conquers pride. And we see this supremely in the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate pride killer. It's the only scenario that frees you to be humble while at the same time fills you with the soul-sighing satisfaction that you are immeasurably loved and tremendously valuable. Right, when you get it that God loved us so much that he became a human being and lived a sinless, perfect life, marked by humility and love and compassion, only to be mistreated, abused, betrayed, and brutally murdered at our hands, and God himself became the victim of the most egregious injustice the world has ever known 
also that he could bear upon himself the punishment we deserve to restore the relationship with him that we broke to redeem the very world we defiled while saving and restoring us to that for which we were created, how is there any room for pride? You you, you can't ever look at the cross and think you've achieved your own salvation, that you've worked your way to God, that you've made yourself righteous. You can't ever look at the cross and think there's something you need to, to add to it in order to be saved. But at the same time, how is there any room for self-loathing? How, how is there any room for thinking that you're worthless? And Jesus did that for you. That's how much he loves you. That's how important you are to him. That's how much he desires you to be restored to him. The New Testament scholar Don Carson says that the phrase proud Christian is an unthinkable oxymoron. It's like a married bachelor. You just, it just doesn't... <laughs> How can you have a proud Christian? By definition, you're not proud if you're a Christian. Only God's grace conquers pride, just like it conquers all sin and its dehumanizing consequences that lead to death and alienation from the sovereign God who loves and sustains us. It has to work this way. There can't be another way. How can you avoid pride if you're saved by works and by what you do? Salvation by work is just personal achievement again. And it's not going to actually transform you. You're not actually going to become a good person because you're never going to do any good for its own sake. You're doing it for your sake. You're going to do it so you can get to heaven, so you can put God in your debt, so God owes you. You're not going to do it for good. Now, God's grace, supremely realized in the gospel, conquers our pride. And if that's not enough, We can even see how the gospel brings us comfort in light of God's sovereignty. It not only kills our pride, but it brings us peace. Because the gospel can bring us peace when we feel the temptation to worry or despair or feel hopeless. And we worry because we're afraid God isn't going to get something right. right? We know how it has to be, but God might not get it right. Or we think God doesn't care or that he won't act. We see things that happen that they don't make sense to us, and we fear God has abandoned us. He's dropped the ball somehow. Well, think for a second about the disciples on Good Friday when Jesus died. Did that make any sense at all? Was that anything less than completely devastating to them? How could that possibly be good? How could a good, all-powerful, sovereign God allow that to happen? And yet, three days later, they got the answer. You know, what seemed to be the worst thing that ever happened in the world was actually the best thing ever to happen for the world. And so when we encounter suffering, evil, when we encounter things we don't understand that don't make sense, we may not know what the reasons are, but we know what they aren't. It can't be because God doesn't deal with evil. We see him deal with it on the cross. 
can't be because God doesn't love us. We see his supreme love for us on the cross. It can't be because God doesn't want the best for us. He gave us his best, his very self, and gave it up for us on the cross. Only God's grace can conquer our pride and bring us comfort so we can humbly rejoice in his sovereignty. Most of us have probably heard of George Muller, a godly man in the 19th century who who cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life without ever asking for, for financial support. And when his wife died to whom he was married for 39 years, he preached at her funeral. And this is what he said. He said, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss continually the hand that has afflicted me. My dear daughter and I would not have my wife back were it possible to produce it by the turn of a hand. God himself has done it, and we are satisfied with him. How in the world could he say that? Because God's grace conquered his pride and brought him comfort. He knew that everything he had was given to him. He knew that all wrongs would be righted, He knew God was in control. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that, friends. Only God's grace can conquer our pride and bring us comfort. So let me ask the band to come up and we can respond and I'll I'll, I'll pray for us. So as we respond... Let me suggest two places to to look or meditate. First, maybe we need to repent of our pride. The first step here, actually, is to admit that you're proud. And if you persist in pride, ultimately you're going to face judgment because you can't earn your way into salvation. I heard uh, Tim Keller, the preacher from New York City, say once that God doesn't really divide the world into the righteous and unrighteous. We're, we're all unrighteous. In Christ, the world is really divided between the proud and the humble. The humble who receive God's gift as a gift and the proud who think they need to achieve it. So maybe we need to repent of pride today. Repent of those times we've looked down on others. We've thought great of ourselves because we've turned God's gift to us into an achievement. And secondly, maybe you are in a place of hardship or just general worry or anxiety about the state of the world or something that's going on in your life right now. So receive God's comfort today. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is not unaware. He is not distant. He is not uninterested in you and your thriving. Look to Jesus and see that the very opposite is true, that he is for you. He gave everything for you. So receive that, humbly receive that comfort that God's sovereignty brings. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for recording for us your very words so we could read them hundreds of years after they happened, God, and learn about who you are. Thank you so much, Father, that you gave your son for us so we could be free from sin and pride that we could be free to receive your goodness, that we could be free to rejoice in your sovereignty. Not question it, not doubt it, Lord God, but rejoice in it because you showed yourself good and faithful and loving. And you always show yourself that way, God. You are so faithful. And so as we respond today, Father, would you stir our hearts? If we need to repent, may we repent. Bring conviction where it is needed, Holy Spirit. Lord God, where we need to receive peace and comfort, help us to receive that, to know who you are and who we are, ones so dearly and infinitely loved by you. We give you thanks for this. Pray, Holy Spirit, now work in our hearts. Help us respond to your truth and your word. We ask it in Christ's name.